This is the word of the Lord, Exodus 19, 1-13. In the third month from the very day the Israelites left the land of Egypt, they came to the Sinai wilderness. They traveled from Rephidim, came to the Sinai wilderness, and camped in the wilderness. Israel camped there in front of the mountain. Moses went up the mountain to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain. This is what you must say to the house of Jacob and explain to the Israelites. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. After Moses came back, he summoned the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. Then all the people responded together, We will do all that the Lord has spoken. So Moses brought the people's words back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear when I speak with you and will always believe you. Moses reported the people's words to the Lord, and the Lord told Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. They must wash their clothes and be prepared by the third day, for on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put boundaries for, all the, for the people all around the mountain and say, Be careful that you don't go up on the mountain or touch its base. Anyone who touches the mountain must be put to death. No hand may touch him. Instead, he will be stoned or shot with arrows and not live, whether animal or human. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they may go up the mountain. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you, uh, Rachel, and thank you, Krista. What an incredible testimony of Krista for share. Just my heart was very moved by that. It's beautiful to hear. Um, my family's been involved in foster care. My parents did foster care when I was growing up. And grateful to see that legacy of care and compassion continue on. And actually, as we start a new teaching series today in the book of Leviticus, uh, the Lord has some things to say about care for the vulnerable in Leviticus as well. And so, maps on really nicely here. I'm so excited to preach through the book of Leviticus that I just woke up at four this morning. Just woke up, ready to go. When do I get to start preaching? I've wanted to preach through Leviticus for coming up on like almost four years ago. Uh, it took me that long to wear down the elder team, so they finally said yes. So I'm like, the people are begging, begging to read chapters on mildew and sacrifices. And, you know, it actually brings up a, a couple of challenges. Let me talk about the series a little bit, because the book of Leviticus does come with its own set of challenges. I would argue that the book of Leviticus is in the top two books of the Bible particularly when people want to make fun of Christianity or to point out things like, oh, it's so backwards or it's so um, you know, gruesome or whatever. Leviticus and probably the book of Joshua are the top two books of the Bible that people will use to try to invalidate the uh, authenticity of the word of God. And some of the challenges are because it comes to us from a very different culture with very different customs. You know, you think about culture and customs, things that you just take for granted. Uh, you know, like... There used to be a time in most, you know, especially maybe like parts of the South in the United States where, you know, you're expected to take your hat off when you entered a building. And I looked into it. No one knows why. Like we don't really don't, we don't do it as much anymore. That culture, that 
custom is especially in, in Northwest here, but even going back like 100, 200 years ago, it's like, why? Why take your hat off when you go in a building? No idea. No one knows. There is nobody who has an answer to that custom. And so when we read the book of Leviticus, there's things that are just these cultural customs that are given to us that no explanation is given for. Why do this? Why do that? Like, why can you eat certain animals and not these other ones? There's no rationale given for it. There's certain things that are just kind of assumed because it comes to us from a different culture. And we have to be able to let the Bible speak to us on its own terms and not try to impose our own cultural views on it. But it's, it's a challenge to read in the book of Leviticus. Why? Uh-huh. I don't know. You're going to hear me say the words, I don't know, a good handful of times throughout the book of Leviticus. Some of it is just kind of confusing, or maybe it seems irrelevant. I was joking with, with Jennifer before she did the scripture reading, like, yeah, a whole chapter on mildew. Like, I don't know who's scheduled for that week for the scripture reading, but Jennifer, make sure you black out that date right now so you don't have to read. There's going to be some interesting scripture readings. You're going to hear the scripture reading. You're going to come in like, what on God's green earth does that have to do with me in, you know, the North Puget Sound in the year of our Lord, 2022? Like, what does that have to do with me? Well, challenge accept it. I'm going to show you what it has to do with you. But at least on the surface, can we be honest, sometimes in that read-through of your Bible, it just seems a little bit irrelevant or kind of confusing. And, like I said, some seem maybe backwards or outdated. Issues around gender and marriage and sexuality or just all of the violence and the sacrifices and, uh, you know, why is, God, why is God such an angry germaphobe in the book of Leviticus or whatever? And I, I intend to show you uh, first of all, not to be anti-Semitic and, you know, start saying anti-Jewish sorts of things, because that's not good, but also just how, the, how these things are not backwards and outdated, and how actually, in many ways, the principles that are taught there, our lives would be better off if we followed the principles outlined in the book of Leviticus. Let me talk to you about Leviticus as literature. Le, uh, Leviticus is part of the first five books of the Bible, that's known as the Torah, or the books of Moses. Let's say them all together. Book number one is Genesis, Exodus, good. There you are, right? Number four? And, or as my oldest, who was playing piano here today when she was little, said Deuteronomy. Uh, Leviticus is the center, huh? It was Laney? Oh, it's the other daughter. Okay, well... This daughter said it right from the beginning, I'm sure. So, uh, These books of Moses, authored by Moses, compiled together and, and kind of put into their final form during the time of the exile and the return from the exile um, in Babylon. But the center of the Torah, it's interesting, these five books of the Bible, Hebrew authors love to put things into kind of a parallel sort of structure called a chiasm. And so Leviticus is the central book. And actually in the dead center of the book of Leviticus is the chapter on the Day of Atonement. So many scholars have pointed out that the Day of Atonement is the center of the center of the center of the Torah. And I like to think of the book of Leviticus as a priesthood job manual. If you've ever started a new job, especially if it's a company of any size, they give you an employee handbook, an employee manual. Here's where you submit your receipts. Here's what to do if you have to call in sick. Here's our, you know, sexual harassment and discrimination policy. Here's all these sorts of things. You think about a handbook, a a job manual, it's got some random different things in it, doesn't it? Well, the book of Leviticus really is the employee manual for the priests of Israel, the Levites, the tribe of Levites. That's where we get the name Leviticus, the Levites, pertaining to the Levites. So this is their how-to be an employee of the tabernacle. I actually heard one scholar refer to it as the tabernacle owner's manual, and I like that as well. I think that's a good one to think of it. How do you own and maintain a tabernacle for God to dwell with his people? So that's what the book of Leviticus is. 
And there's a lot of different subdivisions, but it roughly splits into the front half, which are about rituals, and the second half, which is about ethics. As I mentioned, a lot of the ethics, you know, how do we, not only how do we ritually be clean and pure and holy before God, but how do we live ritual, uh, uh, ethically clean and pure and holy lives in our normal neighborhood interactions? And then number four, when we think about Leviticus's literature, I, I say this one, I'm going to be clear how I say this. Leviticus is not particularly messianic. Now, Jesus is everywhere in Leviticus, but when I say messianic, what I mean is the figure of the Messiah, Jesus as Messiah, is uh, more of a kingly sort of figure. And the book of Leviticus is not really dealing with the kings, it's dealing with the priests. Now, we know that Jesus is our high priest, and so there's a lot of Jesus in here, but when I say not messianic, that's what I mean by it. We don't, we don't see as much of the kingly sorts of... Uh, examples or, or illustrations in the book of Leviticus as it pertains to Jesus. Now, here's how our approach is going to be. Our approach is we are going to be, in this sermon series, thorough but not exhaustive. Thorough but not exhaustive. Uh, most churches, well, most churches don't touch the book of Leviticus with a 39 and a half foot pole. But the churches that do, what, what I found most commonly is they'll do like six to eight sermons. Kind of a little overview. Here's the major themes. Here's the major ideas. Kind of just survey, get through it, move on to something like Matthew. Uh, I also found, though, some churches that were exhaustive, like 50-plus sermons. Like, they just absolutely went ham on it. Well, they didn't go ham because that's outlawed in Leviticus. But you know what I mean. Like, they, they <laughs> that was one of those jokes I thought up at 4 a.m. this morning. We'll see if it, we'll see if it worked. But the, uh, they just go really, really thorough. We're going to go thorough but not exhaustive. We're gonna, right now, the current plan is to do 23 sermons in the book of Leviticus. Uh, and we're going to be looking at you know, a little bit more over a chapter per week. Some weeks we're going to be looking at like two chapters, so we just kind of have to do selections from it. But I would encourage you to just read ahead about a chapter a week, and it'll keep you right on pace. Also, our approach is to help provide discipleship and apologetics. So first and foremost, I want to acknowledge, I believe I'm speaking predominantly to those who are followers of Jesus. And so from a discipleship standpoint, I want you to see how a book like Leviticus is relevant to your life as a follower of Jesus. But I also want to equip you in an apologetic standpoint to be able to answer some of those objections and some of those criticisms that come. So you have some homework to do. You've got some study to do. You've got some preparation to do as followers of Jesus to know how to be able to give an answer for those objections. And then lastly, I really want to do a lot of context first and then Jesus. Meaning, I want to invite you on each given week when we're doing these teachings, I want you to try your best. I know this is impossible. Try your best to pretend like you didn't know about Jesus for like about the first half of the sermon. What does this passage mean in their ancient context? What would it have meant to people who lived before the coming of Jesus? And then I'm going to invite you at certain points to put your I'm a follower of Jesus hat on and we'll all get to be shocked and surprised together as Jesus shows up in the book of Leviticus for us. I'm just warning you right now, okay? So context first, then Jesus. Because the big idea for this series really is this. Christians, you can't understand the work of Jesus without the book of Leviticus. What does it mean that he's our great high priest? What does it mean that he is the new and greater temple? What does it mean that he is our pure and spotless sacrificial lamb? What does it mean that he's the bread of life? All of those things and more find their basis and their foundation in the book of Leviticus. All right, I've already gone long, and that was just a series introduction. Let's pray, 
And we're going to set up Leviticus by looking at Exodus 19 with some narrative context of why there should even be a book of Leviticus. Will you pray with me? Lord, your word says that all scripture is breathed out by you and it's profitable for teaching and correcting, rebuking, training in righteousness. And so, Lord, we, we want to believe that this is true even about a book as challenging like Leviticus. That this is profitable for us. This is good for us. This is useful for us. So, Lord, I ask that you would guard my speech and let me to only teach that which is in line with the truth of your word. And I pray that each and every single one of us would be drawn closer to you in your perfect holy presence as a result of our time together here this morning. Make yourself known, Lord God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Leviticus is the answer to a burning question, a burning question for the people of Israel. You ready? Here's our question. How can imperfect mortals approach a perfectly holy God? A perfectly holy God, a powerful Holy God inviting imperfect mortals into his presence. This is the question at the heart of the book. This is the question that Leviticus sets out to answer. Now think for a moment with me. Uh, Just think of this theme. Think of this thread of relationship to God, uh, proximity to God. How do we have proximity to and with God? See, at the beginning of the book, the man and the woman are, are created. There's, there's, the whole world is made and it's all very good. And in the world, there's a land called Eden. And in the center of Eden is this garden sanctuary. It's a mountain, the book of Ezekiel tells us. This, this mountain where God is. And it says that, that the man and the woman lived in this perfect Edenic proximity to God. In Eden, they had perfect relationship with God. It says that he would walk with them in the cool of the day. There was no sin, there was no death, there was no defilement, and humanity and God dwelt in the garden, mountain, holy of holies, in the center of the land of Eden, in the middle of God's glorious creation. But what do the man and the woman do? They rebel. They choose sin. They choose to define right and wrong on their own terms. They choose to eat from the tree of the knowledge of of good and of bad. And so as a result, they are exiled away from the presence of God. The book of Genesis tells us that there was a flaming sword placed at the entrance of the garden and, and these guardian cherubim. When you hear cherubim, don't think little fat chubby cherubs. Think flaming throne room guardian, intimidate you, make you wet your robe sort of presence to keep you out. The people now have lost uh, access to the proximity of the presence of God. There's no more of that close relationship. And as you read through the rest of the book of Genesis, you see that the presence of God, well, it shows up on occasion. There's an occasional presence of God. Abraham has an encounter with God. Jacob wrestles with God. But But it's not regular. It's not close. It's not what it once was in the garden. As the book of Genesis concludes, we see that the the descendants of Abraham, Joseph, and all the family of Jacob, they all end up in Egypt, and and they're thriving. They went there because there was a famine in the land, and they're living in the land of Goshen, and they're there in Egypt. But then you turn the page in the beginning of the book of Exodus, and it says that a new pharaoh showed up, and he didn't like the Hebrews. He didn't like how prolific they were at reproducing, and he didn't like how successful they were, and he didn't like that the blessing and the hand of the Lord was upon them, and so he enslaved them. And now the people of of Israel are enslaved in Egypt and they're crying out. There's no presence of God in slavery. 
It's just labor and toil and hardship. And the people are crying out, where is our God? And so God calls a prophet named Moses and he raises him up and Moses goes and he confronts this Pharaoh and he says, no, these people belong to a God. And even though the, the book of Exodus almost seems like it hints like the people have forgotten to which God they belong, this God identifies as I am. He just is existence. Why is there anything? Because this God is. And he says, I want you to let my people go that they may journey out into the wilderness and we may spend time together, that they may worship me. And so the hope of the Exodus is that God is setting his people free that they may be together. Well, Pharaoh's heart's hardened. You know the story of the Exodus. You've probably seen the, you've, well, I hope you've read your Bibles, but you've also probably seen the, the movie with, uh, what's his name, Yul Brenner and Charlton Heston. And if you're really unlucky, you might have seen the version of it with Christian Bale. Just awful movie, but uh, good Batman, terrible Moses. But you guys, you've seen the, 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 the way that the Lord shows up in power to wage war through these 10 acts of warfare against the gods of Egypt. And he delivers his people and they're going to go out and they're going to go to their new homeland to be with their God. And then all of a sudden they're like, wait a minute, what's that chariot sound coming from behind us? And the Pharaoh once again changes mind and he's chasing after him and they come up against the, the Sea of Reeds or the Red Sea and they're like, oh no, we're trapped. We've got Pharaoh behind us and there's water in front of us and where do we go and what do we do? And, and God speaks through Moses and Moses stretches out his staff and the waters part and they cross through on dry land and God shows up with yet another miraculous event and they, they get through the other side and then the, the Pharaoh's army start coming through the water and the walls of the water collapse and the horse and the rider are thrown into the sea and all of the bad guys are, are, are getting their just desserts for the torment and the torture of the people of God and under Moses' leadership and with Miriam they start singing this song of praise to the Lord and among the many things that they sing about and they rejoice in is that they are going to get to dwell with their God. Exodus 15 verse 13, they're singing to the Lord with your faithful love you will lead the people you have redeemed. You will guide them to your, what's it say, Sound City? To your holy dwelling, with your strength dwelling, God's holiness dwelling with his people. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain. There's that Eden language, mountain of your possession. Lord, you have prepared the place for your dwelling. There it is. Lord, your hands have established the sanctuary, the most holiest of holy places. The Lord will reign forever and ever. We get to be with our God. And so God says, I like it. Meet me at Mount Sinai. We're going to put a ring on it. We're going to have a ceremony. We're going to join together forever. So they go to Mount Sinai. And you heard in our scripture reading that Jennifer was reading for us that the Lord said, okay, this is going to be intense. I'm going to show up in power. I'm going to show up in glory. You're going to see a display of what I'm really like. And you need to warn the people, don't come up on the mountain. You don't just get to rush up into the presence of a holy God. You don't get to just run into the presence of, of life himself. You don't get to just approach. You need to go through the right proper channels. Get ready. So picking up where that scripture reading left off in Exodus 19 verse 16 says, on the third day when morning came, oh, think cool things were always happening on the third day in the Bible. On the third day when morning came, there was thunder and lightning, a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud blast from a ram's horn so that all the people in the camp did what? They shuddered. They were afraid. 
Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now imagine, just put yourself in this scene. Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because the Lord came down on it in its fire. Its smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain shook violently. Have any of you ever been in a, like a significant earthquake? I grew up in Alaska. We, we call that Thursday. Uh, the, 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 like the whole ground underneath you feels like it's turned liquid and you're just unstable and it's very disorienting. Skipping down a few verses, the Lord directed Moses to go down and warn the people not to just break through to see the Lord. Otherwise, many of them will die. And even the priests, now this is a little interesting foreshadowing because technically we have not formally established the priesthood. That's going to happen in Leviticus chapter 9. But there's some who are serving as priests, these representational figures who go in between. They mediate in between God and the people. Don't even let the priests just go up. They have to consecrate themselves first. They have to do certain rituals. They have to be in a right place, in a right standing, or else the Lord will break out in anger against them. There's a right way and a wrong way to approach God. Amen? So then God, in in Exodus chapter 20, the very next chapter, God gives the Ten Commandments, and Moses gives them to the people, and there's this back and forth, and we skip ahead a little bit into Exodus 20, verse 18. It says, All the people witnessed the thunder and the lightning, the sound of the ram's horn, and the mountains surrounded by smoke. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. And here's what they say. Moses, you, you speak to us, Moses. We'll listen but don't let God speak to us or we will die. We're happy for you to go on our behalf, Moses. Moses responded to the people, don't be afraid for God has come to test you so that you will fear him. I love that. Don't be afraid. Fear him. Uh, (laughs) I just love the Bible. So that you will fear him and not sin. He's saying, look, You need to approach God with right awe and reverence. He is a holy God, perfect, glorious, majestic in all of his ways. But don't be afraid of him. Fear him. He's inviting you in. He's inviting you to come close. But it says that all the people remained standing at a distance as Moses approached the total darkness where God was. Can't get too close to this holy and powerful God, huh? Here, in Exodus, he's described as dwelling in total darkness. In the New Testament, it says that he dwells in unapproachable light. All these different images, no one metaphor could capture the grandeur and the glory of who God is. Uh, Yesterday, I was really, I had a, a moment in the afternoon to enjoy. Didn't you guys enjoy that beautiful sunshine we had yesterday afternoon? It really feels like springtime is here. And it was particularly glorious because I spent my Saturday morning at a little league softball game in wind and rain because I'm a good parent, doggone it, and cheering on my child. And, and then it was like, and that, it was like cold and miserable. I'm like, when will it ever be spring? And then the afternoon sun, and I'm just sitting there. And Erin Lynn left and went to the grocery store. She's probably at Target. She's always at Target. And the kids were doing something, and I don't know where they were, because I'm a good parent, remember? And the kids were playing and doing something. I'm just sitting in the backyard. I'm just kind of enjoying the sun. And my mind starts to wander, knowing I'm preaching on this day. I'm like, what would it be like to just get in a rocket ship and just fly into the sun? 
Yes, I know it's weird, I know. Don't do it, right? It would be bad. But why? Is it because the sun is bad? Is it because the sun is somehow evil or, or terrible? No, it's because the sun is powerful. And our sun is actually not even that big of a star. We know that there are stars that are a thousand times larger than our sun. This God is the God who spoke all those things into existence. What would it look like for God to actually show up in that kind of power, in that kind of majesty, in that kind of awe, in that kind of glory? It might look a little bit like a mountain erupting and being enveloped in black smoke and clouds and the people being terrified to approach. So the conversation between God and Moses continues. God gives Moses more laws to deliver the people. He says, this is how you're going to live. You're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. Here's the covenant, you know, the the terms. It's essentially the I do's of the wedding ceremony. Here's how you're going to live. Here's how I'm going to do. And then God says, okay, here's the idea. Rather than staying here on this mountain, I want you to build a tent. We're going to make a tent. We're going to call it the tent of meeting. So God starts giving these instructions. Now, in Exodus chapter 33... We're not quite at the end of Exodus yet. It says that Moses took a tent and he pitched it outside of the camp. Now this is at a distance away from the camp, right? And he called it the tent of meeting. By the way, you've probably heard the term tabernacle. Tabernacle refers to the complex and the physical structures. Tent of meeting refers to the theological and the spiritual purpose of it. They are different terms in the Hebrew. Although they are overlapping, they mean different things. Now anyone who wanted to talk with the Lord could go to the tent of meeting that was outside of the camp. So anyone could go. But what does it say? Did they go? No. It says whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would stand up and they would just hang at the door of their own tent and watch Moses until he entered the tent. Well, let's see how it goes for Moses this time. (laughs) I'm just going to hang. I'm going to kick it here by my tent. Let's see that tent. That tent's scary. Now, when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and remain at the entrance to the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. But notice how this tent, it's still outside of the camp. This is like a, a, a prototype. It's like, it's like when your family member is building their dream house, but they're staying in a trailer in the driveway while the house is being built. It's kind of like that. But then some more laws, some more instructions, and the book of Exodus starts talking about all of this construction. Okay, the real tabernacle is being built. The real tent of meeting within it is being built. It's all these things about how to make curtains and drapes. Does anybody here like sew or enjoy like craftsmanship? Okay, is anyone here like, like woodworking or working with your hands? Anyone here weld? You like making things? If you like making things, Exodus like 34 and beyond, this is your jam. It's going to be like a mini Eden. Fascinating little area of study, by the way. Look up how the tabernacle is created to reflect the Garden of Eden because there's like a tree, a candle stand right in the middle of it. Good stuff. I don't have time for that. Now, they're making everything. They're making the Ark of the Covenant. They're making a table, a lampstand, an altar of incense, the main burnt offering altar, a basin of uh, water. They're sewing up the priestly uniforms. They're making his turban and the gold stones and all that. And we get to the end of the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 40. Here it is. The people have been set free. The new tent of meeting is set up. We're going to be together with our God. Moses, it says, he did everything that the Lord commanded him. The tabernacle was set up in the first month of the second year on the first day of the month. Skipping ahead a few verses, Moses finished the work and the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Yay! But, oh no, 
Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting. This is incredibly bad news. This is awful news. Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud rested on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. At first, the people didn't want to go, but at least Moses could go. And now that God finally shows up, not even Moses can go in. How are we as a people supposed to dwell with this perfectly holy God? And now you know why there is a book of Leviticus. Because God is going to provide sacrifices and priests to make it so that they can enter into his presence. I mentioned earlier that the book of Leviticus is like an employee handbook, an employee manual for the priests. One of the most key verses for these priests is found in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 10, where it says, God is speaking here, and he's speaking to the priests. He says, you must distinguish between the holy and the common. Some of your translations might say profane. And you have to also distinguish between the clean and the unclean, or some of your translations use pure and impure. This is at the heart of the job description for the priests of Israel. Distinguish. Now, let's talk about these words, okay? Starting with the word, by the way, I mean, clean and unclean, we're going to get into extensively in weeks ahead. Let me just simply say, these are not the two, two of the same things. Holy and common is like one you know, axis, and then clean and unclean is another axis. These are not the exact same things. Clean and unclean has to do with our mortality. Most of the things that make you unclean are discharges of bodily fluids. There's going to be some uncomfortable scripture readings coming up here in a while. Uh, touching a dead body. Uh, leprosy, skin disease, things that all have the, the smell of death on them. And when it's clean versus unclean, it's not automatically sinful. In fact, things like a, a woman's regular time of the month is something that results in uncleanness because it's a loss of blood. But it's not a sin. Even marital intimacy is talked about being unclean. That is most certainly not a sin because that was a gift from God. So we know that clean and un- it is not a sin to be unclean. God gives washings of water to help make the unclean person clean so that they can be fit for worship. Now, we're going to get into a lot of that more. Just put that category aside for a moment. Let's talk about holy and common. The word common just means normal. Profane means normal. It's actually such a bummer because when you hear the word profane, I'm going to bet, I would bet money that almost all of us, when we hear the word profane, we think of those words that get beeped out on TV. But that is not what the word meant originally. It literally just meant pro, in the Latin, pro fanum means before the temple. It is that which is before the temple. It's just the normal stuff, common, normal. But then holy shows up, and holy is special. It's set apart. It's not it's not like everything else. When I was growing up, we had our regular dishes that we would use. My mom had, you know, just, just the regular dishes, the common use dishes, the profane dishes, which actually sounds like a pretty cool band name, if you ask me. Hey, we are the profane dishes. Uh, just regular, everyday plates and spoons and stuff. But then on special occasions, 
birthdays, Christmas, holidays, start of, you know, Major League Baseball season. Not really, but you pull out the special dishes, the holy plates and bowls. Anybody have that in your house growing up? Or anybody still have that? You have those special ones? You just don't use them all the time. That's what, that's what holiness really often refers to. Again, when we hear the word holiness, you might be tempted to immediately think morally pure. Now, that's part of it. But holiness is bigger than that. And holiness actually starts with God and his own holiness. I bought a ton of commentaries for this series through Leviticus. And one of the things I've noticed in reading through these commentaries is that holiness is a really hard concept to define with precision. It's a really big concept. So let's try to just spend a moment here thinking about what it means that we serve a holy God. One of the things that it means that God is holy, it means that he is transcendent. He is above and outside of space and time. Now you and I, as earthbound, space-time-bound creatures, cannot even conceive of a being who exists in eternity. He exists outside of space. He exists outside of time. Though he is present to us and in him we live and move and have our being, he is not bound to any of those things. Just make a cup of tea and get out in the woods somewhere and just think about that for a while. He's a transcendent God. Not only is he transcendent, but he is powerful and glorious. This is a lot of what I was talking about, just like soaking up the rays of the sun. The God who, the God from whom all life and being and existence comes. My uh, brother's family, they were texting our, our family text thread. They recently went to Niagara Falls. And they were sending some pictures of it. I've never been to Niagara Falls. Anybody here ever been to Niagara Falls? Okay, uh, my brother was saying something. My brother's an engineer, which is code for nerd. And uh, he was saying something like, there's 600,000 gallons of water go over the Niagara Falls like every minute. I get upset with my kids when they leave the sink on like a little trickle after brushing their teeth. Just the power on display. We were singing it earlier, perfect in power, perfect in holiness. These concepts go together. Not only is God transcendent, not only is he powerful, but he is morally perfect as well. That God is righteous in all his ways. There is no sin in him. There is no darkness in him. There is nothing that he does that is imperfect. He is morally perfect. And, you know, there's another concept. When you think about God's holiness, maybe this one you've never linked together with God's holiness, but it's his order. That God is a God of order. Really interesting. We're going to get into this more as we go, but the book of Leviticus is really concerned with distinguishing. Here's the holy, here's the common. Here's the clean, here's the unclean. This is a holy day, this is a common day. This, this part of the animal goes over here, this part of the animal goes over here. This priest goes into this portion, and there's a lot of ordering, and it really maps onto Genesis chapter 1, where God is ordering the universe. So part of what it means that God is holy is that he's a God of order. Let's just pause, pause. This is a lot to go through. He's transcendent. He's powerful. He is perfect. And he orders things properly. God is holy. Again, how do we go be with that God? How could anyone measure up to that? good news is that all throughout 
the Bible, but specifically in the book of Leviticus, God's holiness is breaking into the world. God is not content to leave his creatures alone. God is not content to say, well, I'm holy, I'm separate, I'm set apart, I'm other, I'm unique, and you're over there, you're common. He says, no, I am going to break into space and time with my holiness. This is what sacred space is all about. God's saying, I'm setting up a tabernacle, and in the tabernacle will be the most holy place. My holiness is breaking into space. There's going to be sacred objects. He's going to take these certain tools and utensils and things, and they're going to be set apart for holy and sacred use. There's going to be sacred time. Certain months and certain weeks and certain days are going to be set apart as sacred. What is, what is the commandment? Right in the Ten Commandments, on, you know, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. This day is holy. It's not like the other days. It's set apart. Your Sabbath should be different than all of your other days. And most importantly, God says, I'm going to make a sacred people. You heard that in our scripture reading. You will be a holy nation, a royal priesthood set apart for my glory. It's almost as if God is inviting people back into the Garden of Eden with this tabernacle set up. Mark Scarlato, who's a scholar, I've leaned on a bunch in preparation for this series. He says, in some ways, we might think of Leviticus as setting the stage for a new world order. Never before since the days of Eden has God dwelt with humanity on earth. But now, this holy God is coming back to inaugurate a new creation, a new Eden, by making his home in the midst of the people. He's come to bless them and the whole world with his presence. Leviticus marks the dawn of a new age for Israel and all nations. God has come down from heaven to dwell with his people, to bring them his salvation, and to teach them how to live in his holy presence. This is why Leviticus is so concerned with holiness. God is saying, here I am. I'm inviting you near. Come dwell near me and I'll teach you how to be holy. And then together we'll spread my holiness throughout all the ends of the earth. Now, friends, there's just only one problem. The entire rest of the Old Testament. Because what is the story? God's holiness. The tabernacle eventually becomes a permanent structure in the temple. But pop quiz, are the people faithful to their end of the covenant? Do they maintain holiness in the presence of a holy God. No, it's, it's like stories of, you know, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, the prophets. It's just like, it seems like just one failure after another, after another. In fact, most of the prophets are them railing against the priests for not maintaining sacred space. So you get to this optimistic book. Leviticus is an optimistic book. You probably have never thought of it that way. Leviticus is a super optimistic book. God and people can live together. And then the whole rest of the Old Testament is like, maybe not. I mean, it ends with an exile for crying out loud. They, they are literally once again, like removed from Eden. They are taken out east to Babylon, just like it says in Genesis chapter three. And they do eventually get to come back and they rebuild the temple. But the people, it says when they rebuild the temple, it says the old men wept because it just, it wasn't like it was before. We're missing the glory. We're missing that power. God's holiness is not on display. Which is why the gospel of John 
is so remarkable. John chapter 1. John is talking about the the pre-existent word of God. And he was with God in the beginning. And the word was with God. And the word was God. And through him all things are made. And John is going just ultimate like philosophy, big picture, the God who is being, the God who is existence. And then right in the middle of this chapter, John 1.14, he says this. He says, the word became flesh. And if you have your Bible out, circle, highlight, underline, dwelt among us. We observed his glory. That glory that we were just looking at, the glory on the mountain, the glory at the tabernacle. We got to see that glory, glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You know what's so remarkable about that verse? The word that we translate as dwelt in English, in the Greek, the Greek word is skenu. It is literally the word for tent. The word became flesh and set up a new tent among us. And now... The tent of dwelling is not a tabernacle made by human hands, but it is the tabernacle of Jesus' flesh. Jesus is now sacred space where God and man can meet together, which is why he said things like, hey, you can tear this temple down, but on the third day, we're going to just rebuild it. And it says he wasn't referring about the physical structure of the temple. He was referring to himself, that he was put to death. His temple, his body was destroyed by sinful human hands. But on the third day, cool things keep happening. Jesus rose from the dead. And now he offers to invite anyone and everyone into his presence through his own death, his own resurrection. Friends, I would say this about Jesus. Jesus is the holiness of God unleashed in the world. He is the new tabernacle. He is the new presence of God. He is that glory cloud of smoke and fire that the people were so afraid of before. It's all now found in the person of Jesus. And you know what's more? If you will trust in him, his perfect life, his perfect sacrificial death, his glorious resurrection, well then you are made holy. All of those who are united to Jesus by faith are made holy. Oh, but Aaron, I, I still sin and I, I stumble and I, and I falter and how can I, an, an, an unholy person, an imperfect person, how can I approach the presence of a perfectly holy God? Well, the good news is it's not up to you and your works. You have been made holy by Jesus when you put your faith in him. And because we've been made holy by Jesus, we are invited to draw near. Let me just say this. I'm going to, kind of land the plane with this thought here and transition us into a time of communion. Uh, I think it would be good for all of us to have a little bit more Exodus 19 awe and reverence of God. Now, hear me out on this. Jesus calls us friends, yes. So if you own one of those t-shirts that Jesus is my homeboy, you're fine. You're not going on church discipline or anything like that. But I think especially for those of you maybe who've been raised in the church and you've walked with the Lord for a while, sometimes it can just be, oh, I just get to go to God in prayer. Oh, I get to go to God in worship. Oh, we're going to community group. We're going to pray. Like, can you believe it? 
Are you shocked? Are you not in awe? Are you not just floored at the idea that the God who made everything, who is, who is holiness himself, invites us into his presence? You get to pray. You get to read the Bible. You get to, you get to come and gather for worship. You get to be in his presence anywhere you go because the spirit of God has filled you. We are invited to come near. This is amazing. This is what the author of Hebrews is getting at. By the way, we're going to be in Hebrews quite a bit in Leviticus because Hebrews is basically a Leviticus answer key. Hebrews chapter 10, the author of Hebrews says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. When the people in Exodus that we were just reading about, did they feel great confidence to just draw near? It's not a trick question. Don't make me start the sermon over, okay? Did they feel great confidence to draw near? No, they were terrified. They stood at a distance. But because of what Jesus has done, you and I are invited to draw near. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to actually transition us directly into the Lord's table. I'm going to invite the musicians to come back and join me here on stage. I'll invite the uh, servers to begin to get ready in place here if you would. This act of celebrating the Lord's table, where we take the bread and we take the cup, uh, this is a, a time to remember that it is Jesus' sacrifice that gives us access to God. But here's what I even want you to think about today. This idea of standing up out of your chairs and kind of walking forward. Now, there's nothing magical about the elements. We're not actually getting closer to God when we come forward. But in a symbolic sort of sense, I want you to think today. I get to approach God. I get to boldly come forward into the presence of God. I get to eat and drink at a table, a fellowship meal. That's the third sacrifice we're going to look at in a couple weeks. It's great. Uh, I get to eat and drink of a fellowship meal with my God, a perfectly holy God who has made me holy through the death and resurrection of Jesus We're reminded of this in 1 Corinthians 11, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then here's the reminder. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself. We're coming into the presence of a perfectly holy God. Examine yourself and then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Let the servers come get in place, please. I'm gonna invite you all to stand if you would. I'll remind you this. Communion is for believers. If you are here today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, come find one of the the pastors. Come find one of us. We'd love to pray with you and we'd love to serve you your first communion as a believer. But this is for believers. Just by way of practical instructions, I'll invite you to come down these aisles uh, if you're on the main floor and return back around the outside. For those in the, in the balcony, you can just walk up to our brother Mark right there. Also, we've made a, a little bit of a change. The lighter area is wine. The darker area in those trays is juice. So uh, depending on your conscience, partake in however you want. But I'm going to invite you. I'm going to pray over you. 
And I'm going to invite you as you come forward to just be reminded, I'm invited to draw near to a perfectly holy God. Will you pray with me? Lord, we come to you today acknowledging that on our own, we have no right to dwell on your holy mountain. We have no right to approach your throne. We have no right to be invited into sacred space. And yet, Jesus' body was broken. His blood was shed. The the true and better tabernacle has made his presence known. And now we're invited to draw near by faith. Lord, we confess our sinfulness. We repent of it. And we say there is but one hope for salvation, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so we eat and we drink with full assurance of faith today. In Jesus' name, amen.